Hey everybody, it's Brian Fitzgerald from the Real Estate Investors Lounge. Today's episode, we're sitting down with uh, real estate investor Don Vogel. In his portfolio, he does a lot of rent to owns, and uh, at one point, I think he had 12 properties. So he touches a lot on what rent to owns are, how he structures them, and gives us a lot of good raw details on how to structure rent to owns. Um, as well, Don is also a private lender, and he breaks things down for us on his uh, real estate venture in, in private lending, and how he structures those uh, private lending agreements. And I think it's a it's an episode I think you're really going to enjoy and be able to take a lot away from. So uh, be sure to listen, and uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Real Estate Investors Lounge. Join us as we cover a multitude of real estate related topics with some of the brightest and most experienced minds in the industry. Our goal with The Real Podcast is to provide information, strategies, and insight on how to navigate the current and upcoming Canadian market. We use the experiences, knowledge, and the expertise of our guests and professionals in the field and offer it all back to you, the listener. We hope you enjoy the show. Be sure to check out our website at www.reilounge.ca. We're your hosts, Brian Fitzgerald, Erica Spencer, and Jay Shaw. Welcome, everybody, to the Real Estate Investors Lounge. My name is Brian Fitzgerald, and I'm here with Jay Shaw. Um, Erica Spencer is yet again on assignment or abroad. I'm not sure anymore. She seems to get a lot of assignments. How can we never get these assignments here? She's just going to become a myth, like a unicorn of some sort. Uh, Today we are sitting down or talking over the phone with Don Vogel, a real estate investor. And uh, before we get too far into it, uh, Don, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I'm fine. How are you doing, Brian? Good. Thank you very much. Thanks again for uh, sitting down with us and and uh, giving us your story and your, your, your perspective on real estate investing because it is, um, you know, maybe a bit more of a unique angle of real estate investing in a way, more than uh, the average person. But uh, I'm really excited to be sitting down with you guys and, and hashing this out. Maybe unique, but uh, I think anybody's capable of doing it. So uh, it's really when you break it down, pretty straightforward, actually. Awesome. So we'll find out. <laughs> so Don, you've got a bit of a unique start in terms of how you got involved in uh, real estate and real estate investing. Maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and kind of what made you jump in, you know, headfirst in terms of, uh, you know, your, your your journey in real estate investing. Sure. Okay. Well, um, I, I'll, I won't go too much in the personal details here and bore everybody, but I'm about 50 years old. I'm semi-retired. I haven't really worked in three years now, <clears throat> uh, but I did work for Hewlett Packard for many years. Um, and I uh, did a whole corporate thing and, you know, I, I, I worked very long for a very long time in a, in a corporate role, uh, because we need the income, you know, you need to pay the mortgage and feed the kids, this kind of thing. In the back of my mind, I always wanted to do something on my own. I wanted to be my own boss, set my own time, set my own hours and real estate was always in the back of my mind. Um, so I finally started, I guess, uh, in 2012 in my mid forties and, um, I just was doing some online searching and uh, where I came across a, uh, a real estate uh, network group um, that was uh, promoting uh, rent-to-owns. And uh, so that's kind of what I, how I started. I started to purchase uh, rent-to-owns. I ended up with, uh, at one point I had 12 properties, but lately I've been selling them um, because they're coming due and I haven't been replacing them. And, we could probably talk about why a little bit later, but um, I, I have six properties now. 
Uh, but it's opened the doors for other things for me as well, like private lending, which I do now as well. Um, and actually, I'm also going back to school to um, study to become an AACI, which is an accredited accredited uh, appraisal, sort of uh, whatever it's called, accredited appraisal CI, something or other <laughs> for commercial. An appraiser. And, uh, red, yeah, an appraiser for uh, <laughs> commercial and residential properties. Uh, and because, uh, again, it just links in with uh, – what I'm doing with investing and with private lending, um, which I find it very interesting as well. So it's, uh, I don't want to call it a hobby, but it's something that I like to like to do and, and making money from it is making it even sweeter. So, yes, I've heard this making money thing is pretty nice. <laughs> Makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, I guess you kind of touched on a little bit, but I'll call it, I'll, I'll steal two questions here, Jay, but what made you start in real estate and how did you get started? Yeah. Okay. Well, so like I said, I always kind of was interested. Um, you know, one, some of the key, there's a kind of like, I think two key things that uh, in my life <laughs> when I was in my forties that really made me kind of get off the pot and, and do something about it. Uh, one was, uh, when I was working at HP, uh, a lot of guys that were older than me, like 10 years older than me, who would have been in their early fifties or mid fifties at the time, um, they were getting let go from HP and, you know, not because they weren't great performers. They were, uh, but their jobs were disappearing. Like just the, the whole nature of, of what we were selling was changing year to year even. So these guys were uh, kind of, they'd had long careers uh, and successful careers and made good money, um, and suddenly they were let go, and they had their packages and whatever. But they had a hard time finding jobs. They realized that um, the job market at that time, this is, again, going back five, six years ago, wasn't great for guys in their 50s. Uh, particularly guys who were making some good money and really didn't want to make half of what they were making before. So I wanted to avoid that. So I really realized that I wanted to get a different income stream coming in. So that was kind of one motivator. Um, I would say another one was 2008, just the uh, the meltdown uh, in the markets. And I had all my money invested in equities and I was uh, an equity trader and, you know, I, I traded some options and things like this. But you know, I, I saw 30% of my net worth uh, disappear in a matter of months, um, you know, due to something totally out of my control. Um, so that's, again, I, I just didn't want to be in that situation. I I had some money and I didn't want to lose it. I really wanted to preserve it. And um, that's, those are the kinds of things that made me start thinking that I need to do something else, but I don't have to work and that I can have an income and that I can preserve my capital. Those are kind of the drivers that got me, invest, you know, involved in uh, in real estate. So, Don, when you started in real estate, um, you were still you were still in your T four job, is that right? Is that yeah, kind that's of, correct. Yeah. So you had basically had kind of started to put the building blocks in place. You had seen kind of what was going on, you know, um, you know, within the company you were working at, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know, I, I mean, you kind of had a, I mean, I've heard the story before. You kind of had an you know, an interesting take on it, right? Where it's like you started to accumulate properties and then, you know, I mean, in terms of kind of what was going on at HP, is it fair to say that, you know, you were, you were willing to kind of, you know, move on or, yeah. you know, I mean, were you one of the ones that, that, that kind of put up their hand and said, Hey, over here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I started buying properties in 2012 <clears throat> and I had probably accumulated six or seven properties and I really wanted out of uh, HP <laughs> and a great company. So, you know, whatever, it's nothing against HP. I just really wanted out. Things were changing in the group that I was working in. And, 
you know, I thought that there probably would be opportunity uh, for me to, to get out. And so I had put my hand up uh, several times. And finally, it uh, finally it came to be. Um, and I got packaged out, which, you know, some people would find that to be a horrible thing. But uh, it was the best day of my life. <laughs> I really uh, was walking <laughs> with a smile on my face. The, uh, the, uh, my, my boss from the U.S. flew up and they gave me the bad news. I just, uh, you know, I couldn't help but smile in the, in, the, in the meeting with him. And he's just looking at me like I was crazy. So, um, so that's, that's what happened. And I got that. And then I, I bought another six properties after that. Wow. Um, it's been good ever since. So it's what did you down? So I don't want to say it's all good, but you know, it is. Yeah, it was like right. everything else, right? Yeah. So what it like? I mean, just kind of before we kind of get into kind of where you're investing in that, you know, I mean, I mean that's that's a great story in terms of kind of you know having the courage to really put up your hand and say, you know what, like I'm ready to move on and kind of you know move to the next chapter. I mean, uh, you've got a family, like you're married. Like, what did your wife think of this? Like when you told her that, hey, I'm going to put my hand up at work and say I'm, I'm ready to leave. Like, did she think you're crazy? Like, is she <laughs> on board? Like, you know, how, how did that work? <clears throat> well, um, she never really told me that she thought I was crazy. Uh, <laughs> I suppose that uh, I think she was a bit nervous about the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I've always been fairly, you know, I've been goal oriented and, um, you know, and I'm, I, I, I I just wasn't going to sit at home and do nothing. And I think she knew that too. I guess neither one of us really knew how this was going to go, but um, the properties that we had were doing really well. The income was coming in. The values were, were going up as planned. This is even before things really started to get crazy. Um, so, you know, um, I had a package as well and I'd been there for uh, 21 years, I think. So I had a decent package, which really helped as well. So, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, she was okay with it, uh, and you know, the kids were too young really to to, to understand. I mean, we told them, but uh, they're much more interested in it now. So. Yeah, does, does and it's your, worked out. Does your wife work, right. or is she? Yeah, my wife of... still works. Okay. Yeah, she she has now decided that she needs to get uh, another stream of income, and that uh, uh, so she's looking at uh, things as well. And in fact, she's starting to get into things like coaching and and that, but. Uh, Oh. I think she says, you know, I see what you're doing. I think it makes a lot of sense. So, Excellent. So she's been looking at things a bit differently as well. Well, it's nice when you guys are both on the same train going in the same direction, though. Eh? It makes things a lot yeah. easier. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, sorry, I'll just continue. I mean, it's uh, my kids are seeing it as well. Um, and then this is like one of the best things that uh, they're interested in what I'm doing. They weren't originally, but they are now. And I don't keep anything secret. It's not like we don't talk about money and, and how to make it and what's useful and everything else. Um, because I don't want them thinking that they just should be working for somebody else all their life. I mean, uh, I think younger kids don't think that anymore anyway, but there's lots of opportunity out there, right? So Yeah, I think there's I a lot of good value in that information too, like you're saying, because I don't think that's, I know that it's been a topic of conversation that it's, that type of information is not in your typical education system of, you know, it's just, you know, get your education, get a job and carry yeah. on whereas i think the, I mean, the value you're providing to them is gonna go a long way I, i'm assuming they're in their teens or uh the older one is 20 and the younger is 17 okay awesome that's great so they're just starting to realize that they're gonna have to make their own money soon and start paying rent it sounds like it's gonna be the, <laughs> the vogel empire <laughs> yeah I think you're really fortunate, Don, where it's like you look back at kind of, you know, your job at HP, you were there for 21 years. I mean, those days are long gone, right, where it's like you see, you know, people, you know, um, like, you know, your kids are going to have, you know, 
a number of different careers at, you know, a number of different jobs, right? You yeah. know, as long as they choose to. But I mean, you know, gone are the days of, you know, the 20, 20 year jobs, the, you know, the, the nice, uh, the nice pension. Like, I mean, those are, those are, you know, few and far between these days. That's for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I went to school in university that when I was in high school, I mean, the whole thing was you went to university, you got a degree, you got to, you know, try to get a job at a big company and you could stay there for 25, 30 years. I mean, my father would be like, you know, you got to get a good job, got to get a good job. There was never a discussion about doing things on your own. It was kind of foreign and in in my family anyways. Um, I think it's more popular now. I think there's a lot of people starting to realize that there's other opportunities. And, uh, um, so, yeah, times have changed. So, Don, you mentioned you mentioned kind of going into, uh, you know, some, some of the properties you're investing in. So you started out with, you know, you had 12, you're down to, I think you said six. Is that right? Yeah. Where exactly are you investing? Like, are you investing in multiple cities? Are you in one particular city? What does that look like? Uh, I am. Uh, I, I choose to invest in one city, uh, which is Barrie. So uh, all of my properties, but one, are in Barrie, and uh, I've got one that's in uh, Kitchener, and, uh, and so they're all single-family homes. Um, the one in Kitchener was just an opportunity that was falling through for another investor that I knew, and he basically said, "Can you help me out here?" and Basically, you want to take this deal. So he was like six days away from closing. <clears throat> He'd lost his financing from the bank. And, uh, you know, somebody was, uh, the sellers obviously wanted to get their money and face, you know, would have faced a lawsuit. So he just asked me to step in. So I did, and I ended up with the property in uh, in, uh, in Kitchener. So, um, but in, I have the rest of them up in Barrie, uh, which has been a great place to be really since uh, 2012, and it still is. Yeah, there's been quite the boom up that way. Yeah, you know, I mean, you guys know Southern Ontario has grown a lot. Pretty much every, all the small cities outside of the, the GTA um, have done really, really well um, in terms of uh, real estate growth. And Barry, I mean, Barry's got uh, go train service now. When I started, it didn't have any. It's got uh, four trains in the morning and four trains in the evening. They're looking to increase that. They've got trains on the weekend now. Uh, there's a lot of commuter traffic going into Toronto, so it's a, it's a bedroom dis- district. I mean, when I tr- it's a great feeling when I have to go up to my uh, my rentals on a Tuesday morning to do something, and I just see this long line of traffic heading south, and I'm going north on the 400, yeah. right, <laughs> at 120 kilometers an hour, and just shaking my head going, wow, this feels so right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, but I was in that rat race for years, too, so, uh, um, but... It's, uh, you know, Barry's got a lot going on. There's uh, increased knowledge worker. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I thought that was Owen. That's the dog. <laughs> and the doorbell. <laughs> It'll stop in a second. No problem. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to close my uh, office door here, guys, one second. No worries. We can edit that out. Yeah, I can I can try something in there. I'll leave the doorbell. Okay, in. I'm sorry about that. No worries. Bye. Um, the so you're down to six properties. You were at one point at twelve. Um, the properties that you're investing in are all they just straight rentals? Are they RTOs or duplexes? Like what's your what's your portfolio have in there? When I had twelve, I had uh, eight RTOs and four rentals. Um, so I, I when I started, I was trying to be uh, trying to do rent to owns on everything, and sometimes it was a little bit difficult to get an RTO buyer a tenant buyer uh so if i had was at it for six weeks or something then i would just basically flip to a rental um 
but that was uh, that happened maybe one in, like it, that didn't happen too often but eventually i would just say okay i'm just going to rent it and try again in 12 months maybe when the tenant moves out and then i also had a couple of rent owns where the tenant buyer <clears throat> excuse me um because of some circumstances um uh, couldn't fulfill and actually left like 12 months in or 18 months in um so I'm not doing rent-to-owns anymore, not because I don't think it's a good deal, just because the market changed so much. Um, but the uh, the rentals uh, that I've got, I'm planning on keeping really for a very long time. Um, and uh, when the market settles down, I might consider rent-to-own again. Yeah, do you find that the like with the influx and the increase of uh, of, of, of prices has kind of hindered the RTO side of things a little bit? I think so. I think there's actually now a lot more tenant buyers out there um, because I think rent-to-own is a little more popular. When I started in 2012, it really wasn't very popular. It was just kind of starting. Um, and I think it's been out for a few years now, and people I've had people calling me asking me to do RTOs with them. Um, but um, it's very hard to price a rent-to-own when I, I was pricing at 5 to 7% annual appreciation you know, in 2017, or even let's say 2016, the annual appreciation is more like 15 to 20 percent. So, how do you price a rent to own without, you know, cheating yourself or the tenant buyer? So, it was just too crazy of a market. If there's no stability in the market, I find it very difficult to price that out. So, I just stayed away from it. Yeah. So, Don, we've talked a lot about rent to own. So, like for people, that aren't familiar with rent home, maybe you could explain kind of how your program works and kind of how you work with tenant buyers. Sure. Okay. Well, so uh, a rent to own is when the landlord owns the property and he's looking to rent it to a tenant buyer. So the tenant will sign a three-year lease. Um, and they also sign an option to purchase contract that says that they're going to buy the property from you in three years time. The price is established up front. Um, usually a five to seven percent annual appreciation uh, is added. So you, you know, a three hundred thousand dollar home would sell for, you know, let's say it's five percent, so what, uh, fifteen grand a year. We'll forget about the compounding. So let's just call it three hundred forty-five thousand that they're going to buy it from you in uh, in three years. Um, so you agree to all of that. They give you a deposit up front, which I would take. Uh, wouldn't take anything less than five thousand, but I've had a lot more than that. Uh, so from a landlord perspective, now you get a $5,000 check, cash flow up front, and you charge a premium rent. So, again, going back when I started, probably market rents for the, for the properties that I had were $1,450 to $1,550, and I was charging $1,750, $1,800. And every payment that you received from your tenant, there was a rental credit, $200, $300, $400, whatever it is that you worked out, that they would also accumulate um, so that when they bought the property, they would have 36 um, payments that they've made to you, of which $300, let's say, was a credit, plus their upfront deposit that they gave you, which was another $5,000, and that would come off the purchase price. So it, it was kind of a great, there's a lot of really good ideas, great reasons why, from a landlord and a tenant perspective, that, that you'd want to do this. Um, like from a landlord's perspective, I mean, you your tenants now are going to buy the house, so they're taking care of the house. So you're not getting phone calls. I, on some of the rent owns, I never got any phone calls. Uh, others would be maybe once a year they'd call up and say, you know, washing machine doesn't work or something like this. Um, 
and I would go have it fixed or replaced or whatever. But typically, they took care of everything themselves. Took care of the property, cut the grass, no problem. You know, painted, replaced floors, <laughs> did all kinds of things because they knew they were going to buy it out. Um, and also, from the landlord's perspective, your downside is limited. And when I first started out, again, I didn't want to lose my money. So I liked the idea that if the market uh, declined, I still had someone who was going to pay me, you know, $345,000 for that house. Uh, and if, it, and, uh, if it, it was only worth 330000 because of the market declining, they'd still have to pay me three hundred forty-five, Or they could choose to walk away, in which case I would keep the uh, $5,000 deposit plus the premium rent that I'd received. Um, so it just seemed like a really secure way to get into real estate investing for somebody who's never been in it, like myself at the time. <clears throat> and the tenant buyers, I mean, these people that are buying are people who maybe have bad credit. They can't get a mortgage. Uh, a couple of people that were separated and waiting for divorce proceedings and splitting of, of assets. So they really didn't want to rent a property, uh, but they didn't, and they weren't, sorry, they didn't want to buy a property because they didn't want to have to split that asset as well. So they were looking to rent, but they didn't want to have to keep renting and they knew they were going to buy eventually. So this was a way to be renting for three years and the divorce would settle and whatever, and then they'd be able to buy the property. Uh, so that worked out well. Um, you know, it, it, it's a really good uh, program for uh, for landlords and for tenants. It actually seems like it's got a couple like little safety nets built into it with your you know your option fee at the front, so you've got some money there. You've got extra money with your uh, premium fee at there, on that side. And then if they happen to walk away, then obviously you're still holding on to that money. I mean. It's kind of uh, a, a straight rental on steroids in a way, just because it's yeah. got a few extra cash flowing <laughs> options, but uh, also you could look at them as kind of safety nets. So that's kind of neat. I don't have much experience with rent owns, but uh, it's definitely something my wife and I are looking into because just like you explained it, I mean, there's there's quite some perks there and especially, especially they take care of the place more often than not, right? Because yeah, it is going to be their place in the end. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that was one of my biggest concerns getting into this, like not really knowing what it was like to be a landlord and hearing all the horror stories of not getting paid rent and all these kinds of things, right? So um, that was kind of what I was really concerned about. So that was an important factor for me was knowing that I would have good tenants uh, and that would take care of the property and, you know, hopefully that would pay because they wanted to buy it out, right? So, and, and, uh, it hasn't all been perfect, but uh, in the majority of cases, that's exactly how it's worked out. So, Don, compared to your street rentals, what type of tenant are you finding? Like, are you finding you're getting a higher caliber tenant uh, compared to your street rentals? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yes, I am. Um, I think the uh, the people who are buying, who are uh, tenant buyers, are thinking long term, right? So they're not like the renters are. You know, um, they aren't settling down. Maybe they're they're there for six months, nine months, twelve months. You know, they don't really care about the property. They got maybe some other issues happening. Uh, but somebody who's who's paying you money up front, five thousand, ten thousand. I had as much as thirty thousand as a down uh, as a deposit. Uh, these people are really serious about buying the house, right? So um, they're at a point where. They know they want to make changes. They know they want to buy a house. They understand the security of owning a house. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there's a big difference um, between a tenant buyer and a renter. 
Oh, I thought I lost you. Thought I thought I lost you guys there for a second. Oh. Um, can you talk about uh, some of the some of the tenant buyers that are currently in your program? Like, are you are you sometimes finding the buyer um, what's sometimes referred to as tenant first or property first? Uh, is that something you practice with your rent owns? No, I was always property first. Uh, I did actually a few. I tried to do like a tenant first uh, a couple opportunities. Um, oh, actually, I take it back. I guess the second one I did was tenant first. Now that I think of it. Um, my my main uh, mo was to go out and, and buy a property with a finished basement and a bedroom and, and, a, and a bathroom in the basement, so that a parent or you know whatever somebody else who could maybe could split the rent and live with the family, you know, just to make uh, make the uh, whole thing financially feasible. That was always what I was looking for. And on the uh, first rent loan that I did, I did have a couple that came in that didn't like the particular house that I was showing, but were really interested in the program. And so we actually started to go out together and we bought, we actually looked at three houses and they bought the third one, which I was surprised. I was like, well, guys, don't you want to look at some more? Because I was concerned that they would get into the house and change your mind if they hadn't put enough thought into what it is that they really wanted. You know, buying a house is a big deal. Um, but um, they bought it. They they decided to do it, to do the rent own on that particular property. We bought it within a week, and um, and they bought it out, actually, from me after three years. So it all worked well. But um, I kind of liked having the property first uh, just because it was just easier. I, I live in Mississauga, so <clears throat> going up to Barrie to meet with uh, – People to look at a bunch of houses. Um, it just was uh, wasn't as easy. I, I found as it was for me to have a property and set my my nights where I was going to go up and have uh, showings and basically just uh, just do it. Um, it it's just uh, I think it's a preference thing more than anything else. I think both can work really well. With um, what you're referring to with the the tenant first. Um... What do you do to kind of secure yourself in that situation? Like, are you taking that option fee up front before you start looking for houses, or how do you yeah, protect yourself me, there? Yeah, they paid me a, a, a portion. I think it was like a thousand dollars. I think they gave me ten as a deposit, <clears throat> and uh, so they gave me a thousand dollars at the beginning, just so that we knew, we, so that I knew we weren't going to be wasting our time. Um, and they gave me the balance once we signed them, signed up for a property. In fact. When we put the offer on, I, you know, they had to give me the balance of it before I put the offer on. Okay. Because that I, makes didn't, sense. I didn't want to buy the house that was just for them and then have them, you know, decide to, to, to uh, renege on the whole thing, right? So yeah, they had absolutely. To give me the That's full what I was wondering deposit. about. That makes sense. Yeah. They gave me the full deposit before we actually put out the offer and accepted uh, uh, the purchase. Um, and that way, if they would have walked, I would have had the 10 grand, right? So. Jay, I'm starting to really like this rent-to-own idea. <laughs> Sound pretty good. Yeah, I think yeah, there's to... lots of opportunities for it too. I think right now, and I think Don, you hit the nail on the head earlier on with everything that's going on in the mortgage market, right, and the, the tightening and the stress test and those types of things. We're seeing less people being able to qualify and purchasing power going down. So, I mean, I I'm a big fan of rent-to-own now because I think it's making a comeback. Where last year, where the market just totally took off. I don't think there was a lot of opportunities in this space. I don't think too many landlords were willing to uh, sacrifice future gains, not knowing where the market was going to go. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I don't know too many tenant buyers that would have signed up to a, 
a 10% annual increase just okay. because that was what was current, right? Yeah. I mean, that really wouldn't make sense. I'm sure somebody would do it, but, you know, I, in, in, in good faith, wouldn't want to offer that to somebody because I would have no idea. And then, you know, the objective here, at least my objective, wasn't to just try to take deposits and run. You know, the, the objective was to get a tenant in there that was going to buy the property from you. Um, so you had to have it done in a way that uh, was going to be fair. Great. So, Don, talk about the flip side of kind of the rent home program. So, I mean, obviously you've got your, you know, you've got your, your lease agreement and your option to purchase at the end of like two or three years, depending on how, what your program looks like. What happens if the tenant buyer, um, you know, can't close or can't you know, buy or decides to walk away for whatever reason? What does that look like in terms of kind of protection for you? And then what do you do with the house after that? Because, I mean, you, you were going into this program fully expecting that at the end of two or three years, they were going to purchase the property. What happens if they don't? Well, um, I found a couple that didn't uh, quite work out. Um, both of them happened in the first 12 months. Uh, so one was a couple that was uh, getting together. Uh, they were uh, both on their second marriages and both had children. And when they moved and they were not moved in together before they met me, they were renting two different places. Or, so they met me and they wanted to buy this house to be together. And they found that uh, the guy and the girl got along great. But um, when the kids were living in the same house altogether, uh, things just didn't work out very well and uh, within 10 months um, she took her kids and left and um, and so you know they had given me a deposit in that case and and I'm very clear with everybody up front you know that the deposit is not coming back I mean we have that conversation so they understand what they're getting themselves into so she, she says okay and I know I'm not getting the money back um, and uh, and then in that case because I think that was in 2015 when they left or something or so. Uh, and I, so I got some other, uh, in that case, I, uh, I put it up again and uh, I had tenant buyers that came in and uh, gave me a, another deposit. And actually they just bought the property. So I did about it last week. In fact, they, they, they had a two year option to buy it or a three year and they pulled the trigger on, uh, on it at two years. Um, so, you know, when they leave early, like they did, and another couple did the same thing for different reasons, but uh, they've lost their deposit. I have one right now that, that, that comes due in October, and I'm not, I'm fairly certain that the person is not going to be able to uh, to purchase it. So um, I've been trying to have the conversations and getting them to see a mortgage broker. Uh, they're not even responding, and they've had some changes in their life as well. Um, so in that case, um, it's probably just going to uh, continue as a rental should they choose to do that. Um, or should I choose to, you know, have them stay there as a rental? Cause I, I bet once it's over, they could, they could leave, but it'll be a high rent and they could probably go somewhere else and get a better rent. And, uh, and I'll probably uh, uh, convert that to a rental. I don't think I'd want to do another rent to own on that one anymore, but uh, just because I'm trying to keep my properties now, but um yeah, I mean, the other options are that you can give them an extension and say, okay, well, things aren't great for you right now. Let's add a year to the lease. We'll increase the rent. And um, the option to buy will be, you know, whatever, 5 or 6 or 7% more than what you would have had at the end of year three. And we'll try again at the end of year four. So you, as the landlord, you have the ability to dictate what the terms are. Um, and, you know, if, if they've been a good 
tenant and you want to keep them, then you can work that in. If they've not been a good tenant or whatever, they're not paying you, um, then uh, the contractual obligation is over um, and uh, you, you can, uh, they can move on, right? Awesome. The, so, um, sorry, Don, the, there's something I was wondering about. A lot of these people that are doing the rent owns are sometimes not financially in a good place. Let's say they don't have a good T4 income or they don't have good credit. Um, if it comes down to the credit side of things, how do they repair that over, let's say, the three-year term of the RTO uh, so that they can then be approved for the mortgage that you guys are, the, the purchase price that you guys have agreed to? How do they do that? Well, I suggest that they all talk, get some credit counseling and talk to mortgage brokers early on. Like a lot of mortgage brokers will provide credit counseling. Uh, at least I've got a few in Barry that I hook them up with early on. And they'll run the credit uh, report and find out where the weaknesses are, and uh, let them know how they can they can fix them. Right. So, you know, if you've got a proposal on your report, and it's not, uh, which is, uh, you, you know, what that is, right? That's when um, they haven't declared bankruptcy, but they basically said, I can't pay this back, and they've had to restructure payments. Um, and it's a consumer proposal that they've agreed to with all the various creditors maybe to pay a little bit less or over a longer period of time. If you've got something like that on your report and it isn't, uh, it stays on for, and I forget now exactly, but um, whatever the number of years is, let's call it five years, maybe longer than that. If you've got that and you're at the beginning of your five-year period, the chances of you getting a mortgage is pretty slim. If you're at year four and it's coming off the following year, then your, your credit rating will start to improve. Um, you know, simple things like getting a credit card, uh, if you don't have a credit card, like just um, if you've got bad credit um, and you're sort of, it's a little bit behind you, but you're still stuck with the bad credit rating, like get a credit card, make some payments or, or use it and make the payment at the end of every month and just start improving your credit little by little. Uh, over three years, a lot of you can, you can do things to uh, improve it. Just depends on the shape of how badly it is, right? Um, with my tenant buyers, when I've got them in there, they've all got good income. So they've always had kind of a legacy issue, maybe cell phones and things like this that they just uh, threw away and never bothered to paying the balance for. And a uh, lot of that actually, two or three cell phones for a thousand bucks. And those things eventually will disappear or they can pay them off. But there's things that they can do over the course of three years to, uh, to get rid of it. Um, bankruptcies are, are a different story. You probably want to stay away from those altogether. Um, because it's very hard for someone who's declared bankruptcy to get a mortgage. It's not impossible. It's just, it's just you know, very difficult. And uh, if you really want to sell it to somebody, then you probably just wouldn't want to offer them that opportunity to uh, only to know that they're not going to be able to do it. It's actually, um, uh, actually pull the trigger on it in three years' time. Right. Cool. So, Don, it sounds like you're you're setting them up for success by kind of pointing them in the right direction and kind of, you know, uh, leading them, you know, the old, the old, uh, you know, saying leading the horse to water, right? But yep. they have to do the heavy lifting and they do have to do the work, right? In order to qualify at the end of three years. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what would you say the success rate is in your program? I mean, is it like, I mean, is it, you know, 80, 20, is it 50, 50? What does that look like? Or have you kind of crunched those numbers? I'd say it's about 80% that, uh, buy out. Um, you know, I've had two people walk away. And like I said, I've got this other one that doesn't look too good right now, and they're due to uh, to buy out in October. 
<clears throat> but um, you know, out of the ten attempts, I think of uh, various, you know, rent owned that I've had out there. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's why that's three. So I guess a seventy percent success rate or something like that. It's fairly good. I do think that um, as a landlord and selecting my tenant buyers, that I, I am looking for winners. I, I don't want to take people's money. <laughs> I really, uh, there are people out there that are opposite to that, and that's fine. Uh, do what you want, fill your boots, kind of thing. But for me, it's like if I'm going to take your ten or fifteen thousand dollars, I really want you to buy the house because I know that I'm going to get a 30% annual return on my money, uh, even if I sell you the house at low market value, um, you know, because of the way that, just because the way the market has gone. I'm still making my money, and I want you to be successful. And, I, and you know, I need good references for other people who may want to do things for me as well, right? So I'm protecting myself and my own integrity. Uh, but um, not everybody, I think, has that approach. Uh, but... Uh, but I did, and the you know, landlords are always, or sorry, the tenants are always very thankful when they get to the end, and uh, you know because we've given them a, an opportunity to get into home ownership they they would never be able to get into. In fact, with the market going so crazy, like some of the people that bought from me two years ago, you know their houses are worth probably 150 grand more than what they paid me for them, um, and if they had waited two years to get into it, they they may be out of home ownership possibly forever because. You know their incomes haven't gone up that much, so um, so they're very thankful and uh, and I think that uh, my view was I wouldn't want to put anybody in that I didn't think was going to be successful. That's awesome. That sounds good. I think this uh, the title of this episode might be like RTOs for dummies. I feel like I just got like a plethora of information <laughs> on these things. That's so uh, that's awesome. Well, I've done a few and. Uh, you know, and I've learned everything as well. So, uh, you know, that's just uh, experience and sent away for various CDs and talks on the subject and everything else, right? So uh, it's all part of a learning process. Yeah. So on the flip side, um, unless, did you have any more questions, Jay, about the RTOs? No, I feel like Don, every question we ask Don, he, he takes a couple more that I have. So I feel like... <laughs> Yeah, I feel like he's just like reading my mind there. I don't know if he's got like tarot cards in front of him or not. Yeah, sorry about that. No okay, problem. I'll, I'll just I'll just say yes or no. <laughs> so my understanding, Don, is uh, you recently got into private lending. Um, can you kind of elaborate and talk to us a bit about that, and uh, maybe explain kind of what private lending is for for the listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, private lending is. Uh, Kind of like individuals lending money to other individuals. Um, the, the the borrowing um, in a real estate sense, anyways, it's always uh, against property. It's a mortgage, uh, like a second mortgage, often referred to as second mortgages or third mortgages. And the amount of money is registered on title of the property that it's borrowed against to protect the the lender um, and act as collateral for their for the money that they lend out. Um, Anybody could be a private lender, right? So anyway, I guess so. That's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I could go on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, go on. Like, or unless you want to ask a question, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, there's um, 
I don't know where to begin here because there's just there's a lot of things to say about it, of course. But so, so Don, let's just let, why don't we just break it down into a little bit little parts here, right? So I mean, uh, you kind of explain like the broad level of what private lending is. How does it work from your standpoint? Like for example, if uh, you know, I mean, someone like Brian uh, was looking for private financing on a deal, uh, and he reached out to you or found out that you were involved in private lending. What would be the steps involved that Brian would need to to take? Like how I took it off of me and put it on Brian? Yeah, no, that's a good question, though, because Brian might call you one day. You never know. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really know much about Brian, right, Brian? So, that's true. Uh, so I will tell you exactly if you were to call me. I mean, we would have a nice discussion about what it is you're trying to do. And um, uh, hopefully your request would be for money to invest in real estate because I only do uh, private lending to people who want to invest in real estate. There's a whole other area where um, you know people are looking to cash in on the equity of their homes so they can buy a new car take a trip uh, buy a dress or whatever I mean it's kind you of mean you don't want to refinance our credit cards here uh, Don? <laughs> no <laughs> no, no. Uh, when I when I lend the money I like to know that it's being used to create value because in a way it gives me more security that I'll get my money back right so if I lend money to somebody who's, who's putting a, a, a basement apartment into a, a bungalow um, they're adding value to that piece of property, and uh, you know I think it just in- improves my chances of getting paid back. So I'd want to know, Brian, uh, everything you plan to, to do with the money, and we're going to assume that you're going to invest in it. So I'd want to understand what your investing background was, uh, your experience. Um, I have an application that I would want you to fill out, um, which really just helps me write a credit report and things like this. But um, you know, I probably wouldn't even run a credit report because I'd know from talking to you, I think, uh, pretty much where that is. But anyway, I, I may or may not. Um, and then, um, you know, if you had, if you were an inexperienced real estate investor, um, I'd want some credit reference, like personal references. And if you were inexperienced, what I want to understand what you've done, I'd like to see maybe what kind of properties you've invested in before um, or if you, you know, if you uh, borrowed money from other private lenders, I'd like to get references to the call up. So I would, you know, I'd basically vet out as much as possible whether or not you're going to be able to pay me back. <laughs> that sounds so, fair. What your net worth and all this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And I would tell you too, that, you know, if you were a recent investor, um, and you still had access to uh, financial institutions, mortgage money, I would tell you to go there first because uh, um, that would be your best option. So uh, private lending, I think, is great for people who have had a bit of experience, who are looking to grow their portfolio, who know they're going to make a 20 or 30 or 40% return on their money so they can you know, feel comfortable with spending the higher amount of money that a, a private mortgage would cost versus a bank mortgage. Right. So, yeah. uh, I, I just don't want to lend you money and take the money. I uh, hopefully you can impart some uh, guidance as well. <laughs> right. And, and so, how do you how do you secure that investment with? Well, Brian, the investor, how do you secure that with me? Well, it all goes through lawyers. Uh, you'll have your lawyer. I'll have my lawyer. Um, the uh, you would pay all the legal fees for all of this. And uh, the, the mortgage is just like a bank mortgage. It's actually um, um, on title of that particular property. So, you know, if, the, if you don't pay me, I can force the property into foreclosure and, and uh, 
and get my money back, right? Or if you don't pay the first mortgagee, if, uh, if there's a first and second, um, they might do that first, uh, and that would leave me kind of with whatever's left, like after they sold the property, whatever's they get their money first and I get mine second, right? So, um, so I might buy out the first mortgage just to get, so that maybe I can get the property myself. So, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's the collateral of, of, of uh, having, the, having it registered on the property allows me through a legal process to actually acquire the property if things go really bad for the, uh, for the borrower. Uh, so it gives me um, a lot of security, actually. Yeah, more security like... than most investments. More security than a stock purchase. <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not. <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah. Awesome. So, Don, is there a certain threshold that you're going towards? Like, I mean, when you're lending money, you're obviously looking at a deal, um, you know, the back-end stuff in terms of kind of what the property's worth. Like, I mean, if... You know, I mean, you talked about second mortgages, like could an investor, you know, theoretically go get a mortgage from a bank and then, you know, typically with investment properties, you have to put 20% down. Could they then go to you for 20% or like, what does that look like? Well, I, I mean, um, if you went to hundred percent, that's, that's pretty risky on your part, is it not? Yeah. I would never go to hundred percent. Um, not even with you, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I would never, I really would never go, I'd never say never, but uh, going to 100% is, uh, is not good because there would be fees to pay if you had to force the property into foreclosure and pay the uh, sales commissions and legal fees and all this kind of stuff. So you really have no protection and it's going to cost you extra money. So personally, um, when, if I'm lending money to real estate investors, an 85 to 90% LTV, historically, I've been comfortable with. The market's changed a little bit, um, and I think I'd probably go 85 to 80 to 85. I don't think I'd go as high as 90 anymore. And LTV for those uh, non-technical people is what, Don? Uh, sorry, loan-to-value ratio. Loan-to-value ratio. So uh, up to 90% of the value of the property um, could be in loans. And, you know, typically a bank, like you said, would do 80%. So then I would be looking at doing 10% as a sort as a second mortgage. And I always like to see the, uh, the borrower have some skin in the game. Yeah. I was just going to so, say, yeah. You know, like they've got to have some money in this or they can just walk away and, and, uh, you know, leave me kind of hanging there. Yeah. You want to know that they have something to lose and they're not just going to up and up and go. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, no one wants to lose, Brian. We're in the in the business of investing, right? No, I don't plan on losing. <laughs> yeah, but you know, things happen, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, life happens, and you know, whatever. I mean, people's personal situations may change. Um, markets may change. There's a lot of things that you don't really think are going to happen that could possibly happen. So you just want to be able to protect yourself a little bit from those types of things as well. Okay, so Don, how are you doing this, right? Like, I mean, uh, like, I mean, do you have, uh, like, you know, are you independently wealthy? Like, do you have, you know, sleep on bags of money, like, outside of your house? Like, do you heat your house with the, you know, those bags of money? Like, how are you doing this? Like, do you have, like, liquid cash? Are you using some other type of investment to, to fund these deals? Like, what is, like, if someone were interested in kind of doing what you were doing, how would they do it? <clears throat> okay, well, like I said, I'm in my early 50s, so I have had... Uh years of working 
and saving and investing and things like that. So yeah, I do have some money, uh, which I've been able to, uh, to save. Uh, when I was at HP, I also had a, uh, defined uh, contribution pension plan, which means I put in X dollars every month, and they put in X dollars every month, um, but they don't, you know, at the end of the day, I manage the investments uh, through the choices that they give me, which are mostly mutual funds, uh, but that is the amount I've got for my retirement, right? So if you work for a large corporation, chances are you've got a pension fund that uh, is accumulating somewhere. And so what I was able to do actually is uh, when I left is to take money out of there and move it into a trust account, um, which, you know, I can't touch it until I'm 65, but I can then in the trust account, I can um, purchase arm's length mortgages. Uh, so that money can now be freed up to invest in mortgages. And again, there's a legal problem, you know, it's got to go through the legal process of lawyers and you call your, your trustee who will make the arrangements and they will send the money out to your lawyer. They will collect the money. Um, <clears throat> they sh I should say they will receive the money. I don't think they go out of their way to collect it. If the payment's late, you get a phone call. But uh, <laughs> uh, but basically, there's a trustee for it all, right? So you really you you know you can't withdraw the money, or you that would be considered um, income for you, and have to pay tax on it. So uh, so a lot of this money is just in my pension, and the interest goes back into the same account. Um, and uh, Again, after working for so many years, yeah, I've got some money in there that uh, allows me to do uh, uh, private lending through there. Uh, so you're basically funding all of this through your RSP? Um, most of it. Not all of it. Not all uh, of it. That's fascinating because I don't think a lot of our listeners know that. that that's no. a huge opportunity to, you know, take, you know, what a lot of us think is a, an investment that we can't touch until 65 and now use that to invest in deals and, and get, you know, maybe an even better return um, than we could make on our RSPs or our mutual funds. That's yeah. that's fascinating. Well, I'll tell you, how I really started to get into it was I was at a real estate conference and I'd answered a question. They gave me a bag of books, you know, as a prize. There was like three books in it. And one of them was called The RRSP Secret and uh, written by Greg Habstrit. And I had that book for a year and finally it was over the holidays and I was just looking through and I started reading it and uh, and I read it through and I'm like holy crap and it's all about investing in mortgages through your RRSP so if anybody's considering it get that book <laughs> because that is a book that'll take you from soup to nuts everything you need to know about it tell you how secure you are or you aren't and, and how to manage it uh, it's excellent excellent book and I read that and that's basically the only schooling I had to to get started with uh, when I did get started it sounds like don't let it sit on your bookshelf and collect dust, right? Read it right away. <laughs> a, lot of other, a lot of other books sitting on my bookshelf. I'm wondering what gems are waiting for me there. <laughs> so, Don, with the private lending, and I, I, firstly, how many years have you been doing the private lending? I guess uh, three years, maybe three and a half, something like that. Three years. And, and I, with, I guess, yeah. yeah. In those three years, what's kind of the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in that in that kind of niche um, I guess the one thing that uh, when I look back um, the rollout of the of the money I, I would uh, probably want to have um, it, it is hard to find the right people so the right people to lend to and you can make a good return but your money also sits idle for a while between mortgages right mm -hmm. so I guess having uh, 
a good uh, flow of opportunity and working on keeping that flow coming uh, is important. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's word of mouth. I mean, I don't have like uh, an endless amount of money to invest. So my fear was I'm going to start letting everybody know that I'm doing this and then, you know, you'll be out of money and you'll have to turn everybody away. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, but still, I mean, um, there's a, uh, you know, they get paid back over time. Some of them are three years and some of them are six months. Right. So you, uh, you you just got to keep the, uh, the pipeline going and, uh, finding uh, appropriate people that uh, you don't need a lot, like depending on how much money you, you might have, but if you had five to 10 people that are in the business of uh, investing in real estate and turning things over, I mean, then you're fine. Right. So I think that's been the biggest challenge actually. So Don, what are you looking at? I know we kind of talked about the merits and the fact that, you know, you're registering your investment in second position as a second mortgage. So I mean, Theoretically, you're taking on a little bit more risk if anything were to go sideways that you would be in line behind the bank, right? And I mean, you know, the bank may choose to to sell it off at market value. They may choose to sell it for less. You may not be able to recoup your entire, you know, I mean, hopefully not. You'll be able to recoup everything, right? Um, But, I mean, obviously you're taking on a little bit more risk. So in terms of rates, like, I mean, what, like, I mean, typically, I mean, obviously it would depend on, on particular deals, but like broadly... You know, what could an investor who would be looking at, you know, lending out a second mortgage, what would they, what would they charge? <clears throat> okay, so um, it kind of breaks out in a, and again, back to the loan to value ratio. So if you're dealing with, if you want to lend money to somebody and, uh, and they've exhausted their uh, financial institution money that they could possibly get, you know, I would say anything up to 60% LTV. So the first 60% of what they wanted to, to lend if you're going to do it at that level, you know, uh, an invest uh, a lender would be in a six to eight percent kind of interest rate range, you know, and then from like sixty to eighty, you're into the eight to twelve, eight to yeah, whatever. I mean, give or take, right? But eight to twelve, maybe as high as fifteen percent, up to eighty percent, and over eighty percent, you're in the twelve, fifteen, eighteen percent kind of uh, interest rate range. So. Um, you know, if you're just going to do a second mortgage and you're taking uh, over 70% up to 85%, you're probably looking in a range of about 12%. I think my, my portfolio average is uh, is over 12%, just over 12%. But basically you're the bank, right? Like you, you, you essentially are, you know, that guy from Monopoly, right? With the monocle and that. I mean, you're the banker, right? So you can basically charge what you want. So if you wanted to charge 12%, if you wanted to charge 15%, there's nothing to say that basically you have to charge a certain amount. Is that, is that a fair statement? That's right. Yeah, it's wide open. I guess there's usury fees that kick in at some point in time, and maybe that's 40% or 60 I don't even know. But there is a legal uh, cap that you cannot charge more than. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, you, you're in the driver's seat. You can charge whatever you want. Um, and, again, I guess I should say that the rates that I'm quoting are rates that are going to real estate investors. Like, I... I before I decided really just to focus on real estate investors, I was looking at uh, people, again, who were looking to take some existing equity from their home and and buy a car or, or do this or do that. You know, I had one guy, uh, he was looking for a seventh mortgage for $15,000. Oh, seventh mortgage. That makes me cringe. And, uh, so, you know, and he was at a, I think he was at a 90, 
something that I think he was going up to maybe 92 or 93 percent LTV. Uh, that guy, I mean, you know, that's going to be a 20 percent mortgage at least. It's not, I mean, plus fees up front. I mean, um, you know, I don't know who would want to do that deal, but there are people who would, but um, not me. Uh, but yeah, so again, if it's somebody who's taking the money and going on a trip or, you know, maybe they're investing in their kids' uh, tuition, which is a good thing, but not really creating any immediate value. Uh, you know, um, I think that factors into the interest rate as well. And, uh, you know, you might be charging somebody 15 to 18% or something like that. Awesome. So no, no seventh mortgages for Don Vogel. So those of you at home looking for a seventh mortgage, you will, you won't go that high. He's only no. good till six. <laughs> so no. Don, what about the other side, right? Like, I mean, so, I mean, we've talked about like from the investor side of like for people interested in potentially you know, getting into private lending, what about the borrower side? What about someone who's coming to you to be like, I have this great deal. Sounds like someone I know in my household. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, they're coming to you and you're like, okay, like you're, I'm willing to do the deal, but I'm, I want to charge you 12%. Like, I mean, how do, I mean, it's not for you to convince them, but like, I mean, how, like, I mean, if someone were to challenge you on your rates, like how would you wrap, how would you help them wrap their head around the reason A, you're charging it and B, like if they wanted to move forward, what that would look like? Um, <clears throat> I think investors, first of all, there's like a threshold amount that gets their attention. So, you know, 10 to 12%, most people start going, yeah, I'd be interested in lending money at 10 or 12%. Um, people aren't really interested. A lot of people aren't interested in lending money at anything less than that. So, you know, from the, from the borrower's perspective, they need to understand that it may seem like a lot of money, but investors have other options. They could invest their money in other things. And uh, so, you know, in some cases, that sort of dictates a certain lower threshold. I mean, for me, I'm really not interested in anything less than 10%, as an example. And I know lots of others who have higher thresholds and are willing to take on more risk because they feel the security is there with the, uh, you know, with, with securing it on the title, right? So... So I guess that's one of the reasons why maybe they're a bit high. Uh, as far as, you know, convincing, you know, the business case for why somebody would want to borrow money at such a high level, um, you know, I, I think you've got to look at what you're investing, what your opportunity is, and uh, and factor it in as a cost of, of doing business. You know, people can acquire maybe three or four or five houses uh, without too much trouble. But if you want to get into multiple homes and 20 <laughs> homes, you know, you need to start having some options available to you from a financing perspective and it, it starts to get more expensive, but you know, you're going to buy that 20th home because again, you know, you're going to make a 30% return on your investment or more. Uh, so paying uh, 10 or 15%, you know, uh, you're still coming out ahead and uh, you're, you know, you're building out a portfolio and you're going to be getting appreciation, hopefully, as well, that you're not necessarily counting on as part of your business case, but you know that it's there as well. So, you know, you, you, you got to be comfortable with it. you got to be confident in what you're doing as a, as a borrower. And, that makes, um, makes so much sense, right? Like what you're saying, just in terms of that, like, I mean, both from a, from a lending standpoint and a borrowing standpoint. I think the biggest thing that, you know, Erica and Brian and I do, like when we speak with, you know, with members is that like 
it's a fundamental mindset change, right? Where it's like, you know, going back to kind of that whole discussion we had about, you know, your kids and, you know, how they're, you know, taught and there's, you know, no, no teaching of, of finance in school, right? The biggest thing that we try and educate our clients who, you know, I mean, you know, aren't kids. I mean, they're, you know, seasoned professionals. They're, you know, um, very experienced is to think like an investor and not like a consumer, right? And I think the point that you just illustrated, um, you know, where by paying that extra bit of money to get access to that and invest in an appreciating asset, you're going to be so much further ahead, right? Or a lot of us see that, you know, that that sticker shock, right? Where it's like 12%, are you crazy? Right. And, and, and it's like, I mean, you're not a bad guy. It's like, but you have, you know, you're taking on more risk, right? So, I mean, yeah. it makes sense, right? But if, yeah. if people don't take that money, then, you know, I mean, then they have further to go. They can go and save that money. But if you want to accelerate down the path of real estate investing, I mean, it's a good option. Yeah. It's a, uh, as my daughter would call it, a paradigm shift. <laughs> paradigm shift. I mean, you really, it's like going from, like you said, it's just going from, uh, Oh my God! I was saying five percent, and you want me to go to twelve? It's just, it's just like no. It's the cost of doing business. It's what you need to do in order to keep doing what you're doing, uh, and to provide this legacy and build this portfolio empire. I mean, it's it, you can make it happen, uh, and you got to just uh, open your mind to the whole thing, right? I'm I'm having like information overload right now. I've <laughs> got so many things scribbled on a on a sheet of paper, I but I can't read half of the things. Um. Well, I mean, I think that's a good overview. I mean, for for touching the the tip of the iceberg, probably with the uh, private lending. Do you think you're up for a, a fire round, Don and Jay? Ooh, fire round! I didn't know there was a fire round. Oh, we didn't send you these questions. Get ready. <laughs> I don't know where Jay went. He might be. Oh, I'm ready. I'm 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 ready. So these oh. are questions, Don, that we ask all of our guests to come onto the onto the show. So, I mean, just the, it's the same, same questions that we ask uh, everyone. So you're at no advantage or disadvantage. Okay. Uh, so Don, where do you see yourself in 12 months? Um, uh, well, I've been looking, we didn't really talk about this, but I've been looking to buy uh, a commercial property. So the six properties that I've sold, uh, you know, have provided me some income. I've been putting a lot of it into private lending, but I'm in a kind of a holding pattern here to buy some commercial property. So, um, I've had a few offers that uh, have come and gone and um, haven't been able to secure anything yet, but that's really what I'm looking at. That will probably mean another episode later in the future. <laughs> um, where do you see the market in the next 12 months? <clears throat> I think um, we're talking about real estate prices, mm -hmm. or uh, is that what you're referring yes. to? Yes, yep. Uh, yeah, I think uh, stability. I think we're back to stability. Um, uh, you know, with interest rates starting finally to, not finally, but, well, finally to creep up, not that we want them to, um, I, I think that there's going to be some uh, some stability now in, in, in rates and everything is being compared back to a year ago. We're almost at the, well, we are at the point now where a year ago was the peak, so we should start to see some sort of more normal year-over-year -year gains uh, instead of, uh, or losses that have been shown recently uh, because they're comparing, you know, today to the to a year ago, which was pretty much at a peak. Um, so uh, I think the stability. I don't see huge increases. I don't see decreases. I think it's just going to be stable. I agree. Jay? Thank goodness, because we can't afford these prices or these uh, 
astronomical second mortgage rates. Jeez. <laughs> They're going to keep going up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you said there was stability. I was talking about uh, the banks. Yeah, oh, okay. not lending. <laughs> All right, Don, who do you learn from? Um, I'm involved in a few real estate networks, um, you know, and I go to their meetings. Um, I do a lot of online reading. I um, subscribe to Economist magazine and things like this. I'm going to school right now, uh, UBC, which is a pleasure thing. So I'm I'm always involved. Um, you know, you you have to you have to search for it, and you will find it. Like, so I, I put the onus on myself, and I I go out looking for that. I don't necessarily have a mentor, but I do have a uh, quite a large group of uh, uh, colleagues that invest in real estate as well um, that I talk to regularly. So uh, yeah, it's all good. It's all part of the network. Yeah, there's no shortage of uh, information out there, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, you kind of led right into my next question, is that uh, what are you currently reading right now? If you're not a reader, which podcast other than ours are you currently listening to? <laughs> like how I slid that in there? I like yeah. that. It was good. Yeah. Smooth. You know, uh, I was driving so much back and forth to Barrie, and I had a whole slew of, um, of podcasts uh, that I would listen to. Um, so, uh, I, I did like Tim Ferriss's guest, so I would listen to his things quite a bit. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, they're kind of slipping me at the moment, uh, some of the other ones. Um, but, uh, if they were like an hour long, it would kind of be perfect for my trip up to Barry and I could uh, learn something from them, right? And, uh, reading textbooks, so it's kind of boring, but, uh, reading like, uh, Commercial property analysis is the one I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah, that actually is pretty cool, huh? <laughs> believe it or not. But anyway, it's a, it's a course book. So. Okay. If you could uh, do one thing differently in the last year, what what do you think it would have been? Um. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I, I don't have time to get into this whole thing that did go wrong, but I would have made a different decision on our property, a commercial property that I was trying to invest in uh, almost a year ago. Uh, when I was, uh, yeah, I basically, um, I'm now in a lawsuit, but I tried to buy a piece of property, commercial property in uh, Cambridge, and it turned out the property had uh, environmental issues and contamination, um, which wasn't disclosed to me at the time, and which we subsequently found out when we were doing our due diligence. So it ended up costing me some money, uh, and uh, so I'm in a lawsuit now to try to rectify that. But I had an opportunity to exit earlier, and um, I I made a hasty decision that I wish I could uh, change. It's kind of vague, I know, but no, no, <laughs> no. But you, le- you, I find that you learn a lot from mistakes, and and uh, obviously you've learned. A big a big lesson here so yeah and uh, you'll yeah, take absolutely. it forward with you yeah. um don what advice would you give to those sitting on the fence just watching somebody like you like what would you say to them uh i would say make a plan if you want to get into investing for example uh make a plan as to when you want to start and uh and and do it like Force yourself to do it. Like if you have not invested in real estate and you've been talking about it for two or three years, um, you know, by Christmas 2018, you're going to own one property. 
and set about and do it because it's not that difficult to do. Uh, it's getting over the whole, you know, it's just setting yourself to do it is, is the difficult thing. I agree. I wish we could teach that to some clients and some friends that uh, sometimes just pulling the trigger, it's it's scary, but I find you you end up, once you're under the, under the gun, you learn so much faster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, the risks are probably not as great as you think, you yep. know, like uh, the rewards. Think about the rewards, not the risks, yep. and uh, have a mindset that you'll handle whatever happens, and, you know, you're, you're just going to handle it. Awesome. Well, Jay, do you have anything else you want to fire away? We're just... We're just no, I think that's a, that's a fantastic episode, Don. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, if people are interested in kind of talking to you a little bit more about you know, rent to own, about the berry market and about uh, private lending, you know, can we, are you okay if we put your uh, contact information in our show notes? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay. I mean, you can email me at uh, donvogel at rogers.com. Okay. How's that? That um, sounds good. And, yeah. And look, uh, look at that shameless advertisement just put in the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for Rogers or for Don Vogel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, yeah. honestly, Don, that was that was great. It was a real pleasure sitting down with you and learning a little bit about RTOs, a little bit about private investing, and uh, I, we've taken up over an hour of your time. So again, thank you very much. We really appreciate that. And, no uh, problem. Thank you much, very much for having me. I enjoyed it, and uh, good luck to all to you and to all of your investors. Awesome. And uh, can't wait to hear your other podcast as well. Yep, we'll let you know. Okay. All right. Thanks, Don. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Hey, it's Jay from the Real Estate Investors Lounge. I want to thank today's sponsor, the Niagara REI. If you're interested in learning more about real estate investing and you like what you've heard today, join us at our next monthly REI meeting and come out to our Taking It to the Streets property tour. You can find out more information, including future meetings, at niagararei.ca.